Greetings, how are y'all? Good? All right. I told my wife, I said, you know, we're getting to the end of the semester and I feel like everyone's kind of tired. I feel like, especially given the storms last night, I think most people are going to want to stay home. And uh, so I was like, I'm going to write an email because I'm so encouraged by what we get to talk about tonight. I just want to make sure there's people here to, to go over that. And I said, did, Lindsay, did you... Did you see my email? She's like, yeah, but I only read like the first part because I was too tired to read the rest. I was like, thanks. That's good. So even if y'all only read the first part, I appreciate that, and I'm glad you're here. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians. You go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray that the Lord would give us uh, energy, honesty, uh, wisdom, and insight that we'd otherwise not have. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we're really, first, we're just thankful that we have the opportunity to stop down in the middle of the week and to be able to gather together, to open the word, to, to read from it, to pray, to converse, um, and to not have to whisper. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that we have that opportunity and that freedom, and I pray that we would never take it for granted. As well, Lord, I know that uh, many here tonight are um, just kind of coming toward the end of uh, the crazy school year, and um, there's projects, and it's kind of that last big month of a push, maybe a little more actually. Um, and so um, I just pray for energy tonight. I pray for uh, encouragement in the spirit. I pray for attentiveness. I pray that as we go through this text, that you would open our hearts and our minds to things we would otherwise have never seen. And we are thankful that you're a God who is that active, who is that involved in the lives of his children, that even when just a handful of us gather in a room in a random city across the whole globe here that you are mindful of what's going on here and I'm very thankful for that I pray that we would learn from you tonight and that we would be um, challenged by what Paul has written in his letter to this church we love you Lord and pray these things in Jesus name amen so this is 2nd Corinthians which means the last time was 1st Corinthians that's how it works and so from our 1st Corinthians study uh, as a recap, to dive back in, what are the three things that the church is to be characterized by? Holiness. Holiness. What? What? Unity. Unity. So oneness. What else? Love. Love. Yeah, I figured that'd be the first one, but we, it was the last one. It's all good. Yes, the church is to be characterized. What we learned in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was that the church is to be characterized by love, um, by unity or oneness, and by holiness. And why is that? Why are those three things that are supposed to characterize the church? Why not fairness and social justice? You know, why, why those three particular things? Yeah, the characteristics of God. Um, the church, by God's design, is to be the, the public expression of God's character and who God is. And so the church is to be holy, united, and loving because God is holy, God is one, and God is love. Um, he's not just loving, he is love. And so we, we are to characterize and to show um, the world, what our God is like by the way that we act as a church. How did Paul judge the worth of something in the first letter? 
How did Paul judge the worth of something? Yeah, if it benefits and edifies others. Exactly. So um, Paul made it very clear that um, he, he, is, he is focused, he is intentional about who he's supposed to be. And as far as if something's beneficial to do or to say, it is only beneficial in as much as it edifies others. There, there's even language in the first, um, in first Corinthians uh, that says, um, do nothing for yourself and only seek the good of others. So it's not while you're seeking your own good, try to seek some good in others. It's actually a little more uh, um, stark than that, where it's like, don't, don't do stuff for yourself. We're not self-people. Self is no longer our God. And so uh, we are focused on others. What does tolerance of sin in the church always lead to? Division. Division. One of the things <coughs> modeled in the, in the letter, the first letter by the church uh, in Corinth, is that when you when they they weren't just tolerating sin, but they were proud of how tolerant that they were of sin, and the reason why would someone be proud of how tolerant they are of sin? Like what? Like that sounds like crazy talk. But why would they practically do that? Yeah, there's a focus inward, and it almost seems as though like you know what we are so tolerant <clears throat> that it's almost like. You're proud of how tolerant you are of sin because you see that as a means of like creating unity. As if like, you know what, I don't want to rock the boat, I don't want to stir the water, I don't whatever, you know, illustration, metaphor you want to run with. Um, so I really just, we're going to be very tolerant of sin. And, and in fact, we're going to be proud of our tolerance because that, that's what keeps us together. We don't have a bunch of people running out on each other or getting mad at each other because we're all up in each other's business regarding sin. That, that's, that's what the proudness was in them tolerating sin. And, you know, interestingly, it's counterintuitive, right? Tolerating sin in the church always leads to division. So you can't think, oh, well, we're just being real tolerant. We're not going to say anything about any sin to anybody because who am I? I'm a sinner, so I'm not, I can't talk about sin. Those are unbiblical concepts. We are all sinners, yes, but we are also all called to talk to each other about our sin. That's God's design. So, we have to be careful to make sure we stick to God's design because when we tolerate sin in the church, it will always, always, always lead to division. And it's no different in our relationships, right? If we tolerate sin in a relationship, tolerate sin in a marriage, tolerate sin in a parent-child relationship, there's always going to be a division that comes. That's what sin does. It pushes us away from each other the same way it pushes us away from God. So 2 Corinthians, um, there, there's actually... yeah. I don't know. It depends on how hard it is. The short answer is, and it, there's, there's a lot more to look at there, but the short answer is that speaking in tongues, when they talk about that, like prophesying and speaking in tongues, the whole thing that he's talking about there is that which edifies the church. And so love, this love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, love, you know, all these things. How, if you want to understand how to walk in that, you go to chapter 14. And, and the point is, is that that text is far more powerful 
when you go back to what it originally was, which it was talking about how the church moves together, how we move, how we live together. So this love that is patient, love that is kind, it's not just this sort of ethereal, mushy, gushy, ooey, whatever you want it to be in your wedding ceremony kind of love. It's specific to making sure we edify each other. And so there is a lot of talk about tongue, speaking in tongues and prophesying. And the point that what he does is he kind of drives all that. If you kind of picture like herding cattle, you know, you get them into a chute and you kind of, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so redneck that that's just the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> I have no idea why I thought that. But when you're, you know, you're trying to get them into a chute, and that's kind of what he's saying. He's like, you've got all these things that you can do and there are all these things that are good, but not everything that is edifying. Not everything's good for building each other up. So he's kind of saying, so whatever it is, and he gets him to the shoot, he's saying it has to edify. It has to, it has to build other people up. That's the whole point and what was said in that chapter 13. So that's kind of the short answer on there. So there are, there's more than two letters, um, and they're actually mentioned within the two letters. And some people think there's three. Some people think there's four. Um, I would say we can guarantee there's at least three. Um, you, you see a harsh letter that was written. But then there's another letter that they apparently wrote to Paul, because as he's writing, he's saying, in your letter to me, you said this, and I reply this way. So 2 Corinthians isn't actually necessarily the second letter, but it is the, the one that has been canonized in Scripture. So tonight, our focus is on weakness in 2 Corinthians. So what weaknesses do you have that you really enjoy? All of them? What Ice cream? Yeah, there are a couple that we could probably name. Chocolate, ice cream. Should probably be careful. I don't want to incriminate myself. Just stop right there. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a silly question because if if I was like, okay, I want everyone to just share out loud what your biggest struggles are, your biggest weaknesses are, and then I want you to tell me which ones you really like, you really enjoy, which ones you find to be just great characteristics to, to, to take with you every day in everything that you do, in every conversation, and in every relationship. It's laughable, but we're going to talk about weaknesses. And so as we're talking about weaknesses, it, it may not be what you think as we kind of dig into the text. Um, what weaknesses do you have that you really enjoy? Well, none of us really have weaknesses that we enjoy. Um, we can have you know, guilty pleasures, but that's different. So here, here's what's interesting. I've always viewed First and Second Corinthians as where you go um, when you need encouragement about not being so bad, right? Like their churches are so jacked up, so backwards, that it's like, man, things aren't right at the church. Let's go read First and Second Corinthians, and then we won't feel so bad about ourselves because these guys are getting drunk on communion and beating each other up and taking each other to court. And, and all kinds of other terrible, gross immorality. It's sort of like watching The Biggest Loser when you feel out of shape, right? Did anyone do that? No? That's just me? You don't watch Biggest Loser while eating ice cream? Nope. All right. You know, some illustrations fly, some don't. That's, uh, that's a Sutton house. Um, so uh, I kind of viewed, I've always viewed, you know, man, that church was really jacked up, but man, God really loved them. And it was just sort of this they perspective, I think, that I've, if I'm going to be honest. Um, or it's just a picture of how, how, how terrible things can get even for Christians. So it's, interestingly, as, as I've studied these two letters more closely in the last month, a very humbling thing has happened. And 
I find myself identifying with their problems and, and with the way that they think maybe more than any other group in Scripture. It's sort of like when you really look closely at what Israel did. You know, Israel, I mean, the poster child for God loves you so much and you are his chosen one, yet you just keep screwing it up. And you're like, gosh, how can they keep screwing it up? Then you look at them and you look at their heart and you look at their thinking and you look at what they're doing. You're like, yeah, I, I, can, I, I can identify with like everything that they're doing. That's how it has been for me in the church in Corinth. It kind of, I've kind of gone from this, they were really screwed up, to we've really got some work to do. Um, and if we're honest, I think, um, I think all of us could find some of that. This wasn't written for the purpose of looking at how screwed up other people are. It was written for the purpose of training, instructing, building up, that we may be competent in every good work. And I think as we look at this, the reason I prayed for honesty tonight, as I, as I pray for in almost every study, is that 2 Corinthians has just kind of shocked me in how, how much I identify with the thinking that was going on in the Corinthian church. Like, if you really look at what was going on, I identify with them. I find myself identifying with their problems. I find myself identifying with their thinking maybe more than any other group in Scripture. So I confess up front, we talk about weakness. I really struggle with viewing weakness biblically. I hate my weaknesses. They are a hindrance. They slow me down. When I see my weaknesses, my thinking goes something like this. God, if that wasn't there, I would be better at whatever you want me to be doing. If I didn't... Uh, regularly find you know, temptation in a particular area. I wouldn't be hindered in my movement. If I, if I didn't have um, this you know, physical thing, um, then I, I would be better in what you want me to do. If I didn't have these par- kinds of thoughts that always creep in, um, if I didn't have fears, if I didn't have anxieties, I would just, I'd be better for you. So why in the world do I have these things? And I, fairly, I think I'd live a fairly charmed life comparatively because I've heard other people's stories and they're far worse. But I know one thing is in common, we all have in common is we all have lots of weaknesses. But I don't view weaknesses as biblically as I should. I view them as um, mainly just a bad thing. It's, a, it's something I struggle with. I know what the Bible says and we're going to talk about that tonight. But I want you all to know up front, when I see Paul saying, I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses. I just kind of sit and look at the verse. And I kind of scratch my head. And I'm like, I don't get it. How about hook me up with some more strengths? We can boast in our strengths, right? Yeah, yay that I'm anxious. Yay that I'm fearful. Yay that I have doubts. Yay that I have struggles in trusting God in particular areas. Yay, that this temptation has been there for 20 years. You know, these things that are sobering. So what it comes down to is, you know, in the opening of this, this, this whole thing, it says, Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, those through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if you are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience with us patiently, enduring, uh, endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Now, I'm no genius, but I think he's trying to get our attention by repetition, and he's repeating one particular word, and that particular word is comfort. 
And the whole point on this intro, Paul immediately goes to the God of all comfort, and he repeats the word over and over. And the whole point is that when we are afflicted and when we have trials and when we struggle with our weaknesses, God comforts us. And the reason he does that is so that when you engage other people who are struggling with their trials or their weaknesses, you can comfort them with the same comfort God comforted you with. And I read all that, and I'm like, that's beautiful. But if I'm honest, I'd rather not need God's comfort. Right? Like, how about just make me comfortable? Like, like I'd rather just be comfortable than, than need the comfort that comes from him. Because that means I'm in a situation that, I, that makes me discomforted or uncomfortable. I'd rather not need God's strength. Rather than capitalizing on my weakness, I would rather God capitalize on my strength. Like To me, that just logically makes more sense. God, you made me. I'm kind of good at some things. Let's run with them. As opposed to being my... When I say capitalize on my weakness, it's, he, he says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so Paul makes it very clear that though we may have the desires to where I'd just rather be comfortable and not need a whole lot of comfort, not need to run to you as my refuge, not need you to be the, you know, the one who's in, I can hide in the shadow of your wings. I'd rather not have to cry to you in the watches of the night. I'd rather not have to um, be in anxiety and cry out to you. I'd rather just be comfortable and I'd rather not be weak. I would rather be strong. And that way you could capitalize on that and we all move forward with a happy growing kingdom of God. But the reality that Paul brings out is that that's never been how God works. God has never made it to where Christians will be the majority. He's never made it to where Christians will be guaranteed lives of comfort. He's guaranteed that there will be comfort, but it's not, it's, it's not just to make you feel good. It's, it's because you needed, you needed comfort. <laughs> and, and we are never guaranteed that, that we would not have any weaknesses when I hear Paul talk about his weaknesses the way he does in this text, it's very challenging to me because I don't view my weaknesses that way and I don't view your weaknesses that way. That's why we need these texts. You don't have a guy teaching you tonight that's like, well, let me tell you exactly how I live and it just so happens it fits with Second Corinthians. I, I, I struggle with what we're engaging tonight because weakness is troubling. A major issue that we pick up on early in Second Corinthians is this. It seems that the Corinthian church has begun falling for immediate impressions. It seems the Corinthian church in this letter is falling for looks and for appearances and for worldly measures of success, particularly in their leaders. I want to read, this is Mark Dever's um, survey, which this is sort of the no need to recreate the wheel. I utilize this every week and then make my notes from it. Um, but he says, and sort of some background here, he says, after his initial visit to Corinth, so this, this helps us understand these other letters and the timelines and what's going on in the second letter as we look at it. After his initial visit to Corinth, when he established the church there, Paul left to go start other churches. So Paul establishes the church in Corinth, unlike Rome. He had he'd never seen them, didn't have anything to do with establishing them. But Corinth, he established, he was there, he built it up, and then he planted it, and then he went and planted other churches. It's a good model. Um, sometime later, we don't know how much later, 
he got the disturbing news of factional problems and other difficulties in the Corinthian church. So he wrote the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Paul then returned to Corinth a second time to follow up on these problems. That visit, which commentaries call the painful visit, based on 2 Corinthians 2.1, did not go well. Apparently Paul flopped. Paul didn't succeed. It didn't go as he had planned. He did not make a good impression. He was not impressive. And the problem that he went to fix did not get fixed. So he left in discouragement and wrote what is called the severe letter, which is referred to again in 2 Corinthians 2. We do not have a copy of the severe letter, but we know it was very sharp, and it seems to have had an effect. It seems that the letter, the severe letter that Paul wrote between 1 and 2 Corinthians was far more effective than Paul's visit to Corinth because they were becoming impressed by worldly things like worldly impressiveness. And so Paul shows up. Paul was short. He was bald. He had a big nose, and he wasn't very eloquent. He didn't talk real good. And so um, when he wrote the letter, it had a better effect. And apparently it produced some, some of the changes that Paul hoped for. When Paul learned that the severe letter had affected change in joy, he wrote what we call 2 Corinthians. So that, that's kind of how we got to 2 Corinthians. All this history is explained through the course of 2 Corinthians. And in the letter, he also describes his desire to make another visit to them in order to share his joy at what had happened. 2 Corinthians is a fairly simple structure. Chapters 1 through 7, Paul defends his ministry. So we've got to figure out you know, the obvious question, why is he defending his ministry? In chapters 8 and 9, he discusses the collection that he's taking up for the poor Christians in, we think, Jerusalem. He was mentioned that in, in um, the, the letter to the church in Rome. He's mentioned it throughout these other letters that he, he makes collections for poor saints. He then closes the letter with a fresh defense of his apostleship, his, his appointing by God, by Jesus, to go and do the work of um, making disciples as someone who's actually seen Christ resurrected. Um, his defense is renewed in these last four chapters with such vehemence that some uh, have wondered if Paul received news from Corinth after writing his first nine chapters that made him worry afresh. It's almost like you see this long letter and it seems like he's good and it's almost like while he's writing the letter he got some news that maybe things had relapsed a little bit and so he kind of digs in a little deeper for the last part of the letter. Whether he did or not, this book presents, of all Paul's letters, the white-hot personal passion of God. It is the emotional climax of his writing. Romans may provide the most comprehensive statement of his understanding of the gospel. Galatians highlights the heart of the gospel. Ephesians also contains marvelous theology. The two letters to Timothy and one to Titus tell us how to live as a church, but in 2 Corinthians, we encounter Paul's passion at its boiling point as he defends what God has called him to. Some people in the church at Corinth were following men Paul calls super apostles. Anyone ever heard that phrase before? Super apostles? Okay, half and half, 50-50. It's a major issue in 2 Corinthians. And in fact, if we don't understand the super apostle issue, we don't understand the letter. So we're going to get to that in a second. Um, these outwardly impressive teachers had become popular, and they were disparaging Paul's credentials. So, this major issue that it seems is that they're looking at appearances, and they're, they're judging by worldly success, and because of that, now there's these people in the, in the church called super 
apostles. One question I have before we look at the super apostles is, um, how might the church measure success in a worldly manner? I mean, is that hard for us to wrap our minds around that they could possibly be measuring success in a worldly manner? Number of baptisms. Do what? How much they collect, yeah, because they're collecting for the poor. Christy, would you? Attendance, yeah. Can you imagine how weird it would be if, like, when you meet someone and you're talking about churches, for the first question for them to ask is how many do you have? Like, how many people do you have? No, that's not weird. That's what everybody does. What, what? It's facetiousness, yes. Um, that, that is, uh, they're just judging by, by worldly standards. Numbers. Um, the sleekness and impressiveness and their, the eloquence of their preachers and their leadership, the, the standing of those guys in the community. So turn to 11.5. Let's look at these super apostles. I'm going to be honest. I never really fully understood what these super apostles were. I've read 2 Corinthians before. I've seen these things. But I didn't really understand how much of a fixture they had become in the church in Corinth. This was not a small problem, hence Paul giving so much time to defending his ministry. The super apostles, at 11.5, we see this. It says, um, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Okay. So he's addressed that there are super apostles, and he is not the least bit inferior to them. So he's saying um, they're not better they're not better apostles. Their calling's not purer than mine. So something is causing him to address them and to say what he has said and that um, they're not better. In 12.11, he says, um, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I thought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So Paul's saying, I want to make it clear, I, Paul, am nothing. But as nothing, I'm certainly not inferior to these super apostles. Let's just put it in our own terms. If I said, um, uh, I am not inferior to Brad Gallion. We have lunch a lot, so I feel like this is a safe place. Are we in the safe, safe place? Okay, fantastic. Uh, if I said, I'm not inferior to Brad Gallion, I am nothing. But I'm not inferior to Brad Gallion. What does that imply about Brad Gallion? He's nothing or less. Yeah. So, so Paul's using some salty language here. He's, kinda, he's getting to the heart of these dang super apostles. I'm going to tell you about these super apostles. That's where Paul is right now. Paul's most important issue was not defending himself against super apostles. It sounds funny saying. It's like we're talking about like comic book or something. But his most important issue wasn't defending himself. Never was. We've never seen that. It was helping the Corinthians to see the truth. And in typical Paul fashion, he sticks to the gospel, which is a message that seemed comparably weak at the time. So Paul is seen as comparably weak to the super apostles. Paul has to clarify things because the super apostles, they're bringing in teachings that are leading the flock astray, but it's not like, hey, go do something wild and grossly immoral. It's much more subtle. It's more, 
Let's be strong people that have a good standing in the community. And let's dress a certain way. And let's make sure that our, our credentials are, are as such. And we'll have letters of recommendation. And it's all of this worldly identif- identifiers of success. And that's how they're leading the church. So it's subtle. It's really subtle. The best of the best in the community see themselves as the best of the best in the community, and they are going to be the ones to lead the church because they can boast in themselves because they're not marked by weakness. They're marked by strength. So the issue is that he needs them to see truth. And so what Paul does is he sticks to the gospel. So Paul is seen as weak in comparison to the super apostles, but what we also have to know is that the gospel was seen as weak in comparison to what the super apostles were saying. So you got a weak deliverer of a weak message in the context itself. It is possible that we, like those in the Corinthian church, need to be reprogrammed or reset or re-educated about the very foundational realities of what it means to be a Christian in this world. That's what got to me as I'm reading through this. They loved the super apostles. They really did. Because there was a lot of strength there. I mean, think about a pastoral search committee, right? Like, okay, this guy over here, short, bald, big nose, can't talk well in front of people, but he knows a lot, but he never gets hardly any results after he preaches. Over here, tall, slender, lots of hair, uh, pronounced jawline. Um, yeah, uh, pronounced jawline. It's in there, it's in there somewhere. You just got to dig for it. Um, and uh, well-respected within the community, trained in, 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 uh, trained in talking good, um, and and always producing and affecting results almost immediately. I mean, if you're a pastoral search committee, you can understand, like, like okay, do we want to hire this guy <laughs> or this guy? Like, it's easy to think in terms of, like, who do we want to lead our church? Well, let's find a, a fool that God can use. Let's, find a, let's get us a weak one, right? So, so I think it's not hard for us to look at the way that the Corinthian church is thinking and go like, eh, I probably would think the same thing. These super apostles. Dever says, you cannot understand this letter without understanding this issue. And he's right. I've misunderstood lots of things in this letter because I didn't rightly understand this issue with the super apostles. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In 11, 1 through 5, he says, I wish you could bear with me in a little foolishness. <laughs> when Paul starts talking like that, I just always kind of chalked it up to, well, Paul sounds like he's about to crack. Sounds like he's kind of losing his mind. I wish you could bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's addressing the issue. I see you guys as, as rather than being a pure bride to the bridegroom, you're, you're kind of dabbling in some other things that aren't so pure. Led astray from the sincere, pure devotion that was once there. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
He's saying, you guys are putting up with lies. You guys are putting up with people coming in and sharing a, a form of the gospel or a different shape gospel or just a different gospel altogether because you can't modify the gospel. The gospel truth, that, that's why they call it gospel truth. You don't change it. It's written in stone. Like It, it is what it is. And he said, but y'all are putting up with it. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? The indication is these guys aren't only slick, it'll only cost you a little bit of money. Because Paul's free of charge. He's saying, should I, did I make a mistake in not charging you like these super apostles? I feel like it should be air quotes every time we say super apostles. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He's saying, you need to understand the difference between me and a super apostle. He's wanting to make it very clear. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Sounds a little bit like Gamaliel there. Let's just wait and see how it shakes out because you'll see in the end what happens. So, slick professionals masquerading as apostles made their way not only into the church, but into the church leadership. They were not like Paul. Dever has a note in his book. He says, These were real professionals, educated, certified, and degreed in rhetoric. They produced impressive letters of recommendation that established their identities and qualifications beyond doubt. If you looked at their credentials in a little folder, like a, like a personnel folder, it's like, no doubt. These guys are awesome. I haven't even met them, but look at Look at the folder. Look at the letters of recommendation. Look at the credentials. I'm excited to, to trust them. To listen to them. Real professionals. They were trained, literally, in eloquence. In how to add up the verbs and the adjectives and the nouns to get the most rhetorical punch at the end of what they said. They were slick. Their persuasiveness helps the church to accept their instruction and for just a tiny fee. So... These super apostles are so slick that it makes them easy to listen to. You, 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 everything you hear, you're like, oh, well, I like that. Ooh, I like that. I like that. And then it's like if another guy, a uh, non-super apostle, comes up and says something that's like, ooh, that hurts, that's convicting. But I like what that, hold on, it hurts sometimes when I hear this. I'm convicted, my, my conscience is bothered. 
But everything this person over here says just makes me feel uplifted and affirmed and encouraged. That's what's going on here. They're not just preaching outright heresy and immoral living. They're just preaching what makes you feel good. And the way they say it, you just want to trust them and hear some more. And these men boasted in themselves, which according to 11.18, 11.18 says, uh, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Paul's losing his mind a little bit there. We'll explain it in a minute. But um, they aren't the kind of guys that are really, really good at what they do, but they're super humble. You ever met someone like that? Honestly, it always irks me because it's like, dang, you're good at what you do. And they're like, no, no. God be the glory. It's like, you are humble too. Look at you. You're awesome and you're humble. Like when you meet people like that, it sticks out. These guys were awesome. And then they were like, hey, I'm awesome. You see this? I'm a super apostle. They boasted in themselves. And apparently, um, um, boasting in yourself was pretty common. Like the way that he talks about it is like, there's lots of people boasting themselves. And these super apostles are no different. They, they looked apart. And man, they, they sure are eloquent, but um, if you forget, they'll be sure to let you know just how eloquent they are, and they'll probably eloquently let you know how eloquent they are. Because man, they boast in themselves. And these men boast in themselves, which is pretty common, because boasting is timeless. These men were impressive, and the people's response was just to trust them. There's a major issue in the church in Corinth after it got established. To make matters seemingly worse, and I say seemingly on, pur- on purpose, not only was the power of super apostles apparent, so also was the weakness of others. So it wasn't that we've got this situation in the church where it's like, oh man, these super apostles are just awesome. I mean, our apostles are good, but the super apostles are awesome. It wasn't just that they were awesome, but in fact, those who were not the super apostles and others they really had a lot of weakness that was made evident and clear in Paul's letter. Well, Paul, Paul's letter doesn't make it clear. Paul's letter clarifies that weakness was there. Does that make sense? So, Paul summarizes this reality in 5.1. In 5.1 he says, I mean, just a, just a quick summary. When he's talking about himself and those who are like him, he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan. I mean, imagine the difference of those messages. The super apostles are going, tent, I'm a, I'm a million dollar Sewell coach or whatever, like, a, like a, an RV of, of granite and marble and, and chrome wheels and all the, all the fixings and you're, you're a tent? And, and he's saying, yeah, yeah, we're a tent. And not only that, in this tent we groan. Paul's real honest. In this tent we groan, not only do we groan, long, but we're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So, the norm for Christians at this time was the reality of groaning bodies that are wasting away. Christian weakness was real. 
He says, we, not just I. He's not talking about himself. He's saying, we see our bodies as a tent. It is wasting away. I bought a 20-year-old pop-up camper. They're not made to last 20 years. They're not made to last 10 years, not some of them. I've taken the whole thing apart, rebuilt the front, rebuilt the back, rewired everything. The first time I put the canvas up, I pushed a little bar out and it goes, <laughs> after I did all that work. Dang, groaning, longing for a 2016 pop-up. <laughs> it wasn't made to, to last like as long as you would maybe want it to. Our bodies are the same way. He's saying we get old. We get tired. We have to spend a third of our life in bed. Do you realize that? God sort of made you to be dependent upon him. Christian weakness is real. It was real then. It's real for us now. So there's this general Christian weakness, but one of the particular things we're going to look at is the weakness of the poor. A lot of times during this time, Christians were poor because of what they believed. They, they couldn't, you know, get a job in the idol factory or things like that because they didn't believe in that. They actually stood on particular principles even though it cost them. But poverty was real. Poverty was a major problem among Christians during this time. In 8.1, it says, uh, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's just completely backwards from the way things normally work, right? For they gave according um, to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you meet many poor people who beg to give money? That's what was going on here with these Christians. They were very poor. Extreme poverty. And it's interesting here that this is a weakness. When you see people begging on the side of the road, do you think, um, oh, I bet they have a, a great career? No, you probably think they probably have no career. Do you think, oh, I bet they'd make a great employee? They might. But generally, we see them on the side of the road just because, well, they're poor. Here, the Christians are poor. Extreme poverty. It's strange that it was those in extreme poverty that led the way in giving. So what I want to that's a little bit of a spoiler alert for, for 2 Corinthians. I'm starting with an example that kind of gives away the ending so that we can dig into these others with eyes that want to look for that. So I want to read if that was an anomaly or potentially a divine pattern. The extreme poverty people are the ones that led the way in giving. So there was the weakness of the poor that was obvious. So you got the power of the super apostles, but then you have the weakness of the poor, and then you have the weakness of Paul. As we go through these weaknesses that, that, that were Paul, I wonder if some of us view Paul as a super apostle. Like I was thinking about this, like, I'm looking at these super apostles, but then I start looking at Paul, and I'm like, what a train wreck this guy was. Either he just had like the worst luck ever, or he just didn't have much common sense. Like when you talk and people punch you in the face, stop talking. <laughs> but I wonder if some of us view Paul as a super apostle. 
Like when I think of Paul, and I think of Paul's faith, I think, gosh, I wish I could talk like Paul. Man, I wish I had the faith of Paul. Man, I wish my life was like Paul's because he like heard from Jesus and then he planted churches in these areas that didn't have them. And then he kept, he just, he just was awesome. Like a super apostle. Paul was the furthest thing from a super apostle. Look at 1, chapter 1. I think I've had an inflated view of Paul if I take a closer look at 2 Corinthians. I think I viewed Paul as if God capitalized on his strengths. But if you read 2 Corinthians, what you realize is God didn't, I mean, God certainly utilized Paul in a unique way, but it wasn't because he was like, oh man, I gotta have Paul. You ever have like those grade school where you're, where you're picking teams? And you're like, oh man, I got. Well, I'll give up anything. That all right? I'll give you uh, these two believers for that uh, that pagan. He's so awesome. I gotta have him on my team. That's not what God was doing. He wasn't capitalizing on some strength that he had. He was really capitalizing on weakness more than anything. But here we begin to see there wasn't a lot of strength to capitalize on with Paul. I mean, he was fit for the job, but he was fit for the job in a totally backwards way than we see people being fit for a job. In one eight. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Hey, Paul, how's your church going? How's your ministry? Well, I was pretty sure I was about dead there for a minute. That's, I don't want to hide it from you that... Um, uh, we have experienced uh, a lot of affliction every time we share our message. He doesn't hide that. But part of his weakness that we see that could be perceived by those as questionable is uh, when he opens his mouth, the result is affliction, um, utterly burdened beyond our strength, despairing of life itself, feeling as though maybe we've received the sentence of death. There's some Sundays that feel like that, but not every Sunday. There's some weeks that are really bad, but not, not every, every one of them. But, but he, this is chapter one. Hey, how are you going to kick it off? Are you going to share your letters of recommendation? No, I feel like they should know that uh, last ministry endeavor, we thought we were going to die. Didn't go well. But God's good. Look at 4.8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Look at 7.5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul writes openly about his weaknesses and his weakness. The super apostles seemed to not have any such weaknesses as they were marked by strength. So we have these general statements from Paul, but we also have specifics about his personal characteristics. So we have these things where it's like, um, he, he, he's clearly, in this one, he's, he doesn't have comfort. He's, he's in need of comfort. Um, he's, he's fighting. Um, their bodies have no rest. They're totally, totally exhausted. And um, within, he's filled with great fear. 
And then in 10.10 it says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. When your main source of communication is speech, and they say that your speech is of no account, it could sort of look like you're losing the game, right? Like, I got, he's got lots of knowledge. I got one mouth and one brain to put something together, speak it. And they're like, and when he does, it's of no account. He's the kind of guy that his bark is a lot bigger than his bite, it would appear, because his letters, we're, we're picturing a super apostle. We know what they look like. But then the guy shows up, and it's like super unimpressive. Look at 11.6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, <laughs> he, he's gotten to the point, he's like, look, I'm not trying to convince you I can talk good. I'm unskilled in speaking. But even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. He's not taking the road of the super apostle. That's for dang sure. Summing up Paul's situation, he opens his mouth. Things go sideways. He speaks truth. People afflict him and want to hurt him. When he, goes, when he writes things, people are like, ooh, let's have this guy here. And then he shows up, and they're like, who is this guy? He doesn't look the part. He doesn't sound the part. And when things go wrong, he's not just this bold guy in the middle of the storm like Lieutenant Dan saying, bring it on, God. He's, he's the guy who's he's full of fear, like we would be. Things are going south, and he's full of fear. That's Paul. And it doesn't stop there. <laughs> it goes on. He has physical trials. He's acutely aware of his own physical frailty and mortality. In 4.7 and, and 4.16, we've already looked at it, Briefly, but 4-7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He's saying, my body, this whole treasure, I'm carrying this amazing treasure around with a lot of knowledge of God. It's just, it's brittle, fragile, common, unimpressive. In 4-16 he says, our outer self is wasting away. Paul also has a knack for getting himself into physical trials and difficulties. In 1.7, we already saw, um, as you share in our sufferings, indicating that he has sufferings. He's not embarrassed by the trials. He's open about it. But the list is still pretty daunting. If you look at 11.16, if you want to understand, when he says he has trials, what does he mean? Because we all have trials, right? And sometimes when you start talking about your trials and someone else talks about their trials, you're like, I'm going to shut up. Because your trials are worse. I, I, I'm going to pray for you because your trials are significant. And so if you're like, yeah, we were on this trip and uh, we were real scared there for a minute. Paul's like, oh yeah? Well, guess what? Uh, 11, 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. He's mocking the super apostles. When he says, so that I too may boast a little. He's like, enough boasting from these super apostles. Give me a minute, even though I don't look the part. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. 
He said, I hear your fool talk. Let me speak in a foolish manner as well. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. You're so wise. You like when people boast in themselves. Well, I'm losing my mind. And I'm about to throw some of them down on you and do a little boasting. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I'm, I'm talking like your super apostles, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? Super apostles. Chisel jaw guys. Yeah. Are they Hebrews? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Are they Israelites? So am I. Huh. Are they offspring of Abraham? Guess what? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I mean, <laughs> like you can hear him going off. That's what he's doing right here. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. And then it gets real sober with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If you think that the call to the Christian life is you'll always have just an abundance of goodness, he was hungry, he was sleepless, he was cold, he was scared, he was he was actually in harm's way. He seems to have a knack for getting into harm's way. This whole section doesn't make any sense without understanding those super apostles. We see him explaining, boasting in the things that you don't boast in. Like, when they heard him boast in these things, they wouldn't go, oh man, you're the real deal. They'd go, what kind of a loser produces that result? That's what they would have said. They would have said, what kind of a loser gets so sideways in his endeavors that he speaks truth and he claims to be from God and he, everyone hates you? It would be like boasting about getting beat up every time you do what's important to you. Or, get, or going broke every time you do what's important to you. Or getting lost every time you do what's important to you. And these seemingly exhaustive lists are only a sample. Paul was accused of being out of his mind for continuing in such a difficult ministry. Even the governor was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize Paul. He just wanted, he, you know, I'm going to, let's just put this dude in jail. And the super apostles would actually leverage the opposition, um, the opposition that Paul faced as an argument against his credibility. So the super apostles would get up and they would not only boast in themselves, but they would say, You've heard of Paul, right? He's probably shipwrecked somewhere right now. He's probably nursing his wounds. Probably got the stuff kicked out of him yesterday after he shared his message from God. You know Paul, right? And they would, there's a smugness about their way, a smug judgmentalness and a smug humor with which they would approach um, the reality of Paul. And then we know that it would say that the gospel was the smell of death to some when Paul preached and taught. To say that the gospel was the smell of death 
means that when people heard Paul speak the gospel, some of them despised it the same way they despised death. That's what that means. You don't cheer about that. You despise it. So in closing, I would just ask who you identify with. Because it really could be any number of people from tonight's study. Do you see yourself as a super apostle? It's very possible. I mean, after the way I've spoken about them and the way Paul speaks about them, you're certainly not going to raise your hand and be like, yeah, I'm awesome. However, when you're honest, when you're alone with the Lord, do you see yourself as a super apostle who is self-sufficient and impressively strong? Do you see yourself more as someone who God takes the weakness and turns it into something amazing for his kingdom? Or do you see yourself as the kind of person who at the end of the day you're like, man, I've got some strengths and God is using them? Man, we got a thing worked out. Because a lot of people think like that. Do you see yourself as a member of the Corinthian church, preferring that your leadership had more hair? Um, uh, that your leadership uh, was like that of the super apostles? Is that, is that what you value in a, in a pastor? Or do you identify with Paul as one who is weak and feels weak and is viewed by others as weak? What we're going to dive into next week is what we see in 12, 9 through 10. We didn't even talk about the thorn that he had that was a, left him in a state of perpetual weakness. So on top of all that other junk, he has a thorn in his side. Not an actual thorn, but like something that made him feel perpetually weak. Perpet- I mean, God's going to use the heck out of this guy. And he felt perpetually weak. And his, and his, his uh, trials were real. So God, he goes to God and says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. This perpetual weakness. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you struggle with your weaknesses, I want you to hear what God says to Paul here. If you struggle with the things you're not good at, the things you wish you were better at, fears, anxieties, frustrations, temptations to sin, I want you to know that you can trust God the way Paul could trust God. And you can plead with God to take those things away. And should God choose not to take them away, what he is saying is, even better than taking them away, I will be made strong. I am your strength in that weakness. If you have a weakness that you hate, and you would love to be rid of it, like you would give other things to be rid of your weakness, and God says, no, no, that means it's actually better for you to have it by the divine judgment of a holy God who's never made a mistake. And it's not just better, but God's strength is made perfect in that weakness. That's what we're going to talk about next week in our last Wednesday night study. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would have a biblical view of weakness. I'm thankful that Paul was not a super apostle. I'm thankful that we can take our cues from a guy who knew how to take a hit. 
I'm thankful that you give us an example of someone who didn't have their whole life together and everything perfect and all of their credentials in order and their letters of recommendation in place and their look just right 